When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As far as Sunday's game is concerned, as the Mets are trying to salvage a three-game series against Minnesota, the good, the absolute good is Tyler McGill. And it goes back to what I said about David Peterson. Okay, great. Tyler McGill went out there, only allowed two hits, put a million guys on base because he walked a ton of guys, but was able to get through it. It was almost your your best of Tyler McGill because that's what he does even in his best performances. He'll find a way to get through it. He'll make the big pitch when he has to, but he'll put 100 guys on base. And to his credit, not just him, but the Met bullpen as well, they held the Minnesota Twins to 0 for 10 with runners in scoring position, which is a part of why the Mets, McGill leading it, the bullpen taking charge after, was able to complete a shutout in which the Minnesota Twins had 10 base runners. And until the very end, Starting with McGill, ending with Adam Adovino, they did a great job sweeping or swooping in and out of trouble. Now, the other thing about this game, and this is our biases, we all have this. If I had asked you a year ago, six months ago, what do you think of Pablo Lopez? Would you trade, name the young player for Pablo Lopez? I think the rumors during the offseason was Brett Beatty for Pablo Lopez. Marlins end up trading him to Minnesota for Luis Arise. We know how that's worked out as as far as what Arise has done for Miami. Well, Pablo Lopez has gone out this season and had a very, very, very good season. Very good season. And by very good, why I think he's had a very good season is the fact that in this day and age in which guys don't do it, he has a chance to throw 200 innings. And to me, that's a very good year. You throw 200 innings this era, and you've got, let's say, a sub-4 ERA, you're having a great year. That's how I view it. And he's got a better than sub-4 ERA. It's about 3.5 ERA. But when you think of Pablo Lopez, because of our biases, you think of a guy that we've destroyed. You have to. You think of Jeff McNeil owning him. You have to. It's, It's only natural. So during the offseason, when there were rumors floated about, hey, if they sign Correa, Beatty for Pablo Lopez, most of us, myself included, said, nah. Meanwhile, think about what Pablo Lopez is. He's a 27-year-old innings eater who's solid. And he was brilliant on Sunday. I mean, he just, he ate the Mets up all day, struck out a million guys. We finally saw the best of Pablo Lopez. Because usually, the Mets bomb Pablo Lopez. I'm not rewriting history. We'll see what Brett Beatty turns into, obviously. So I can't declare that not making that trade is a disaster. Certainly in the short term, it is. Because when you look at the fine line between the Mets having the season they ended up having, and maybe it being slightly different, if they had made that trade in this alternate universe during the off year, Beatty for Lopez, the Mets don't sell. I mean that. They don't, because Lopez would have been making starts every five days. Now, I guess you could say, well, do they not sign one of the free agent starting pitchers they signed? So are we eliminating a Jose Quintana? Are we eliminating 
Who are we eliminating? Or is it an addition? I would think of it almost in it as in addition. <clears throat> and if they do that, and Pablo Lopez puts up the numbers he's put up in Minnesota, this season's different. Kind of like how if Quintana never got hurt and pitches the way he's pitched this season and the way he closed last year with St. Louis, it's the same thing the Mets never sell. One starting pitcher every five days being as good as what Quintana's been since he's come back or as good as what Lopez has been this year changes the entire season. But it was funny to me that we finally saw the good Pablo Lopez. We finally saw him come out and just dominate. But the story was the fact that McGill followed by a med bullpen that, as I mentioned, everyone takes turns blowing up, did not blow up. They delivered. And so guys that I still don't trust, guys that I still cringe at thinking about trying to make big pitches in 2024, Phil Bickford, Trevor Gott, got the job done. <coughs> as did Brooks Riley, who will be in the bullpen in 2024, I presume. And as did Adam Adovino, who put himself in a little bit of trouble when the Mets finally took the lead up 2-0, but was able to squirt his way out of it. And then we get to how the Mets finally did take the lead. Because this was a 0-0 game. Remember, they couldn't hit Pablo Lopez. And by the way, the final line on Pablo Lopez was absurd. Eight innings, two hits, no runs, 14 strikeouts, and no walks. But, and I should mention this, he did hit two guys. He hit Francisco Lindor, and he hit Francisco Alvarez. And when he hit Francisco Alvarez in the hand, Francisco initially stayed in the game, but then he came out of the game. So mark that up as another example of a Met being hit, maybe another example of a Met being hurt, and certainly another example of the Mets not doing a goddamn thing about it. The beat rolls on. But they get to the bullpen. They get to Gavin Jacks, of all people. And now the Mets finally have themselves an opportunity against the pitcher that maybe, just you know, it's possible, maybe they'll put something together against. Maybe. And they did. Lindor hits that little bloop double that falls in a left field. McNeil falls behind in the count after threatening to lay down a bump but get hit by a pitch. So you set up with two on and nobody out. Pete strikes out. And then DJ Stewart. And you got to admit, you have to admit this, Met fans. He's making things difficult. He is. He's making you think. He's making you wonder. Because DJ Stewart could fit something I described earlier. Remember I described the guy who you know is not going to be on the team next year, but he's there. DJ Stewart is 29 years old. He's, I think, going to turn 30 soon. So he's not a prospect. He's a guy that met signed during the offseason, invited him to spring training, actually had a really good spring training, and he's been awesome since August 10th or whatever that date is, August 15th. As an everyday player, he did miss a few games with the side issue. The numbers for DJ Stewart are undeniable. He's got a 980 OPS. He's hit 11 home runs. And the other thing that's really underrated, and I guess this, this is for us geeks that are still watching this team, because it's easy to see his numbers and see his hitting home runs, but he's actually not bad in right field, which I never would have stereotyped. Like, think about how many good plays DJ Stewart has made in right field. So you pause for a second and you wonder, is DJ Stewart kind of in that Nori Aoki group? 
Or is DJ Stewart a gem maybe the Mets found? Is it possible that DJ Stewart, even at 29, 30 years old, is just a guy they found who's developing late, who with this opportunity that's been handed to him, is going to say, hey, I'm an everyday player. Or at least I'm a guy that should have a major role on a team. Here's how I would view it right now. I am not putting this guy in the Hall of Fame, and I'm not even making him the everyday right fielder next year, and I'm not making him the everyday DH next year. But DJ Stewart has earned being on this team next year. And DJ Stewart has earned, hey, if he continues to hit next year, maybe there is something with him. So I'm kind of putting my foot in the water, but I'm not jumping in the water. But I'm also not throwing him out. It's the middle ground. It's that part of me that says, it's probably nothing. He's probably going to go down in Met history as a guy that just got hot in the final two months of an irrelevant season. But I'm not willing to guarantee it and throw him out. I'm not willing to write him off the roster. I think DJ Stewart has earned himself a roster spot in 2024. How much playing time has he earned? I mean, right now, I wouldn't make him an everyday player. I wouldn't write him down in pen as the left-handed DH. I'm not there yet. But I would give him that opportunity to continue to impress and then maybe become that guy. So to be more specific, what does that mean? It means when he goes to spring training next year, I don't think he's battling for a roster spot. I wouldn't put, you know, 25 games in March and rank that over what he's done for the last month at the major league level against major league talent. So I wouldn't put him as a guy that's battling for a roster spot. I'd put him as a guy that's on my roster, not as an everyday player, but he's going to find his way to get at-bats. And if he hits, different conversation. If he hits, maybe in the middle of May next year, we're saying, hey, this is undeniable now. The guy's got to be an everyday player. That's how I view G.J. Stewart. Am I crazy? I don't think I'm being naive. If I was being naive, I'd say he's the everyday right fielder, F. Starling Marte. But I think there are scenarios, whether it's Marte not recovering well from what could be another groin surgery, whether it's the young guys not performing with opportunities next year, where, yeah, DJ could fall into more opportunities again. But it's tough not to be impressed by what he's done. It's tough to just completely ignore that. So we'll keep an eye on it. That's for sure. Uh, quick comment about Brett Beatty. A couple of things about Brett Beatty. <laughs> Obviously, he's not hit. That's the obvious part. Even with his recall from AAA, he has not hit. He hasn't hit lefties. He hasn't hit righties. He hasn't hit anybody. But his defense has looked significantly better. And that's a positive, and it should be mentioned, and that's great. With that said, Brett Beatty's future as a major leaguer is tied a hell of a lot more to his offense than it is to his improvement at third base. His improvement at third base is nice. It's great to see, but he can't be a 590 OPS guy. These at-bats for Brett Beatty right now are significant because if he continues to struggle, I don't know how you view what he can earn in spring training. Like if Brett Beatty finishes by hitting 205 with a 575 OPS and it kind of continues down that road, how do we view him in the offseason? How do we view him in spring training if he has another big spring? How do we view him? Can he win the third base job? Can he win the left-handed DH job? So you want to see something out of Brett. Like I said before, I, I don't want to overrate the really good, or I don't want to overrate the good and the bad, but sometimes the really good 
and the really bad jump out at you. But I do want to compliment his defense. It's been a lot better. The other thing that was fascinating was Friday night. Friday night, Dallas Keuchel started for Minnesota. And based on Buck's story to Gary Cohen that I kind of went nuts about last week, where he changes his philosophy based on the opponent, that you owe it to teams to kind of manage differently based on your opponent, I think we all presume, because Buck said, hey, I'm starting Beatty against the lefty. I wouldn't do that in another scenario. Well, on Friday night against a Minnesota team that, while they're not in the National League, they are in a pennant race, which, according to Buck, I thought mattered. Like, I thought that was a thing. They're in a pennant race. I think right now Minnesota is seven games up on Cleveland, so it's not tooth and nail, but they're, they're battling for a playoff spot. They're certainly ahead. Now, I don't know Buck's mindset. Maybe Buck says, hey, they're far enough ahead where I don't have to honor the pennant race. I'm not sure. But he had Brett Beatty in the lineup against the lefty. And when I saw that, I thought to myself, okay. Now, and I didn't think to myself, oh, he must listen to the Rico. I certainly didn't think that. I thought maybe ownership got to him. Now, Noah Gattel wrote an email about this. I want to read it and we can analyze it. Noah writes, hey, Evan, can't you see the real reason Buck is planning on sitting Beatty against lefties? He's trying to protect him. Beatty just got sent down to AAA because he couldn't handle failing at this level. Now he's back and Buck is not going to put him in a position to fail again. He wants him to go into the offseason with confidence. Now, maybe he plays him against lefties or two to see how it goes. And if Beatty hits, he stays in the lineup. But if he doesn't, Buck has now laid the groundwork to only use him in situations that are most favorable to him. Buck's doing what he always does, getting you to bitch and moan about him and take the spotlight off the player. (laughs) Beatty's confidence is fragile right now. Buck is smart to protect him. Noah. So it's a great thought, by the way. Here's my disagreement. If the reason for not playing Beatty against the lefty was that, I would understand it. Disagree or not, I get it. That's a good, well-thought-out point, and we've talked about it in the past. I remember when Michael Conforto played against Madison Bumgarner. This was years ago. After a great April, he took an 0-4 against Mad Bum, started to struggle immediately after that, ended up in AAA. And for whatever reason, myself included, we thought back to that game That's kind of like a bad turning point for Conforto, which is why you don't throw every young lefty against a left-handed pitcher. Totally get it. (coughs) But my counter to that is Buck's the one who gave the reasoning of the pennant race. Like, we're not debating necessarily, should Beatty face lefties? We could have that debate. It's a worthy debate because it's something we care about as Met fans. But I thought where we would all be on the same side was that Buck's reasoning was flawed. And his reasoning through Gary Cohen was their opponent. That should be irrelevant. If your point is, he's just saying that to take the attention away from Beatty, it worked. I give him that. If this was some master plan to have us talk about something else, great, it worked. But my issue wasn't only centered around Beatty's got to face everybody. I know he's struggling against lefties. And I totally get your point of, hey, he's got 20 games left. You've even said, Evan, I don't put that much in performance over this kind of sample size. Why not have him succeed more instead of throwing him to the wolves against Patrick Corbin and Dallas Keigel? Fine. That's a different discussion. The discussion 
that was brought up by Buck and Gary Cohen was it's based on who they're playing. And that's crazy. And that's what I completely disagree with. (coughs) 